The following message is brought to you by New Song Church and Pastor Joshua Blunt in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information on New Song, visit us online at newsongpeople.com. So we've been in this series that's kind of about spring cleaning, right? Because the spring cleaning, what we do is we look at our house and we look at different areas of our house that maybe are a little cluttered. And, and we go into those areas and we bring simplicity to those areas and we bring a freshness and a renewal to those areas. And so through this series, what we're doing is we're kind of taking that idea and applying it to our life. Because how many of you know our life can get a little cluttered? And, and the Word of God wants to help us to simplify things. It wants to help us to bring a, a, a freshness and a renewal to our life. And so, so if you've been here, you know we talked the first week about the junk drawer. We talked about your closet and, and last week we talked about the refrigerator. Now, if you're right, right now, you're listening, you're like, I, got, I have no idea what this guy's talking about right now. That's okay. We're still glad that you're here. And uh, we'd encourage you to go back and listen to our podcast or listen on our YouTube channel. You can, you can catch up with us. But today I want to talk to you about this, this, this door here. Now, when I talk about this door, really, I, I don't want to talk about the door as much as I want to talk about what's behind the door. And behind this door is, is nothing. But what I want to talk to you about specifically is the mess that can be behind the door. And I think we can all relate to this. Like we all have those places in our homes that can get a little cluttered, a little messy. And and those areas that sometimes we like to kind of just, what we do, our, our solution is let's just kind of close the door and keep that area hidden, right? Anybody relate to this? Like maybe for you, this is your laundry room. How many know laundry room can get a little messy, it gets cluttered. It gets, you know, we put dirty things in there. We put soiled things in there. We put nasty stuff in there and it can get unorganized and it can be kind of messy and a little wrinkly. And so like when you have people over, I doubt that most of the time you start your house tour by, hey, let's start in the laundry room. Like most of the time what we do is if we go to the laundry room, if we are having company over and we close the door and we just kind of avoid that area, right? Because it's messy and we don't want people to see that because it could be embarrassing, couldn't it? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Or, or maybe for you, that, that messy area of your life, maybe it's like a closet in your house somewhere. You know, you've got one of those kind of catch-all closets that, that you just kind of, it just accumulates stuff. You throw kind of broken stuff in there. You throw stuff in there that you know really you're, you're never going to pull it out again, but you kind of put it into this closet. It's maybe a hall closet. Maybe it's in the, the guest room. And, and now it's become this monster <laughs> because now it's, it's almost like Jenga. Like you're afraid you want to get that one thing out of there because you know it's of no use to you. But in order to pull that out, you risk everything else falling out and making a huge mess and everybody seeing the big mess. So what do we do? We, we, we close the door on that area of our life and we just kind of keep that, that mess hidden behind the door. Okay, so what we've been doing, we've been talking about this stuff and relating these areas of our home to areas of our life. So my question to you this morning is, is there a mess behind a door? Is there an area of your life where maybe there's some stuff going on that if people saw it, you'd be a little ashamed, a little embarrassed, and, and so you, you kind of keep it hidden. It's hidden behind the door. It's the mess behind the door. Like we live in a world today where we like to show off our highlights. That's what social media really is all about. But, but what if I was to take the worst moment of your last month and I was to post it on your Facebook page or your Instagram feed or, or if I was to put it up here on this big screen for everyone to see, would you, would you run out of this room in shame? 
Would you never want to come to this church again? What's the mess behind the door? More specifically, let me say it this way. Is there a secret or a hidden sin that you're hiding, that, that you're dealing with, that you're not really dealing with, but that you need to? Now, like you can kind of feel it in the room already. Like this isn't the funnest subject to talk about. This isn't necessarily what maybe you came to church and wanted to start your summer off with. But here's the thing. We have to talk about this. And we have to deal with this. Why? Because, because this, this hidden sin, this hidden, this secret sin, really, it, it, it's a killer. You've got to understand this morning that sin is a killer. I read a quote recently that said this. It said, to be caught in secret sin is a horrible thing. There's only one thing worse, not to be caught. I'll let that just sink in for a moment. See, we think sometimes when we have those little hidden secret sins that, you know, it's just between us. So it's our kind of, it's kind of our problem. It's our issue. But, but you got to understand it, it's not hidden. And, and it's, it's not just affecting your life. It's actually affecting the lives of people around you. See, see, here's the thing, that, that hidden sin, that secret sin, that mess behind the door, it's not just your problem, it's actually that, that sin is seen by God. And God's ability to work in your life is limited by it. But it's not just seen by God, like a lot of us know, like God sees it all, but also realize this, uh, the devil sees your sin. The one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you, he sees it, and his ability to work in your life is empowered by it. And that's why the Bible says this in 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I beg you. Like, that's some strong language right there. Like, you can sense the urgency in that language. And this is Peter writing this. But realize, Peter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. So really, when you're reading the Bible, we call it the Word of God for a reason. It's actually God saying these things. So God says to you, Beloved. In other words, hey, I love you, but I'm begging you. What does it go on to say? It says, as sojourners, as pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Abstain from, from fleshly lust. That means to hold oneself back constantly from evil desires, urges, and passions. In other words, it, it's talking about sin. So God is saying to us today, hey, I love you, but I'm begging you. You've got to stop sinning. Because why? Because God knows that sin is a killer. And that it's going to affect your life and it's going to hurt you. The Bible says this in Romans 6.23. It says, the wages of sin is death. Wages means the payment that is owed to us, that is due to us for sin is death. That's the penalty that's due. And when we talk about this wages of sin, like it's not just, we talk about death. I'm just talking about your physical death. I'm actually talking about the things that can die that are a part of your life now. Like your dreams die because of sin relationships can it can be the death of your relationships your future can die relationships can die God's plan for your life dies your influence can die why because because sin is a killer and so we have to talk about it because it has to be talked about and and again I know it's not the funnest stuff to talk about but here's the thing there's good news see this is kind of a, a, a good news bad news message and I'm giving you the bad news first and it's important that you understand how bad it is because in order for you to understand how good it is, you have to come to grips with how bad it is. And so we have to talk about sin, but more than that, we have to learn how to deal with sin, how to, how to be empowered by God to, to move past it and to get over it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the, the great preacher, 
was quoted as saying this, if you will not have a death unto sin, you shall have sin unto death. There is no alternative. If you do not die to sin, you shall die for sin. If you do not slay sin, sin will slay you. James 1.15 says, evil desires or sinful desires give birth to evil actions. In other words, what's, what, what's in your heart is going to move from your heart into your hands, into the actions of your life. And then it's going to grow. It goes on to say, and when the sin is fully mature, check it out, it can murder you. Sin is a killer. And the wages of sin don't just affect you, they, they affect people around you. You, you look at the Bible, the Bible's full of stories about this. I think of the story of David who, who has this blessing and this favor of God on his life until he commits this sin. He falls morally with Bathsheba, has her, has her husband murdered after he, after he commits adultery with her. And you see that this rebellion rises up in the kingdom of Israel and in his family because of his sin. I think of the story of of Achan in Joshua 6 and 7, after God gave the children of Israel this incredible victory at Jericho as they're walking into this promised land. God gives them this victory. The walls come tumbling down when they obey God. And all God says is, I want you to consecrate Jericho to me. In other words, Jericho's mine. It's the tithe. You give it to me. You don't touch it. You leave it alone and I'll bless you with everything else. So they're not supposed to take anything from the city. But Achan sees some gold. He sees some silver. He sees this really dope Babylonian coat and he's like, man, I got to have that, which is so stupid to me because it's like, what's he going to do? Like all of a sudden Aiken's walking around with this dope Babylonian coat. People are going to be like, bro, <laughs> like how did, you know, we weren't supposed to take anything, right? But, but it's so stupid because he takes all this stuff and what does he do? He hides it. He says he buries it under his tent. It's hidden. He doesn't think anybody knows about it, but God saw it. And because of it, they go into this next battle against this far inferior army, the people of Ai, and they get smoked. And it's obvious that something is wrong. And God helps Joshua, the leader of, of the Israelite people, to uncover this sin of Achan. Now, now here's, here's what happens. It was Achan's secret sin that affected the entire nation of people. People died because of his secret sin. And, and we live in a world, listen, where we're dealing with the repercussions of sins of, of our forefathers and leaders, and we see it in countries all over the world. Your sin doesn't just affect you. In fact, sin touches our lives in, in three big areas. Number one is sin affects your family. Sin affects your family. In Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7, I encourage you to read this verse this week. It, it talks about the iniquities of the fathers being passed on to future generations. Iniquity is an inward sin. It's that hidden sin. It's that secret sin. It's that mess behind the door that you think is just your problem. No, no, no. It's touching your kids. It's touching your family. It's touching your marriage. It's touching your grandkids. Sin affects your family. Sin affects your faith. The Bible talks in James 1 about, about being double-minded and how you, you can't go to God and pray. If you're going to pray to God and receive from God, you have to have faith, right? But, but double-mindedness causes us not to be able to pray in faith. And what causes us to be double-minded is our sin conscience. We go to God in prayer, but we remind, we're remembering all the things that we've done wrong. And so it's hard for us to, to, to ask God in full faith when we know, when we see ourselves in our sinful nature. And it causes us to be double-minded and miss out on the blessings that God wants you to walk in. 
Sin affects your faith. And, and lastly, sin affects your future. Listen, the only person that can thwart the, 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 the plan of God in your life is not the devil. It's you. You're the only one. Satan has no power in your life because of Jesus Christ unless you hand it over to him. And when you sin, that's exactly what you do. Sin is a killer. And that, my friends, is the bad news. But there's good news. And the good news is really good. The good news is that Jesus made a way so that we could overcome sin and put to death those fleshly desires, the deeds of the body. And so if you have your Bible this morning, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 8. And, and I encourage you, get out your, your phones, get out your apps, whatever, really follow along with me because this is one of the most beautiful stories in Scripture that speaks to how God sees sin and how God sees the sinner and, what God, and how God wants to help us to move beyond the sin that we maybe find ourselves in, the secret hidden mess behind the door. John chapter 8, starting verse 3 says this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, they're talking to Jesus now, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. In other words, they caught her in bed with another man. She was doing this wrong thing, this secret sin behind a door. They caught her and now they brought her before Jesus. They say this, now Moses in the law commands as, the, as that such should be stoned. In other words, they're saying what she deserves is death. And they're right. But what do you say? They say to Jesus. This they said, testing him, that they may have something by which to accuse him. Now, now check this out. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So he doesn't really respond at all. He just kind of doesn't pay any attention to him. And so they keep pressing. Verse 7 So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now check out verse nine. If you got a real physical Bible with you or notes, highlight this, circle this, make a note here. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing, with the woman standing in the midst. Okay, so I know you're hearing this story, but I want you to kind of picture this story with me for a moment. Like, put yourself in this story. This woman is sinning. She's doing this illicit act, this wrongful act. It's hidden behind the door, but she's caught in it. And now these men are bringing her before Jesus. She probably knows who Jesus is. She probably understands what he's doing. And she's placed before him. And now these men are standing around with stones in their hand, ready to kill her saying, what do you say, Jesus? What should we do? And Jesus says, okay, you want to kill her? I get it. She's guilty. So whichever one of you is not guilty, go ahead. You throw the first stone. And I believe there's a key here in this verse, verse nine. Uh, There's a lot of people that will, you know, talk about what maybe Jesus was writing in in the dirt. And there's a lot of theories on that. We don't really know, but what we do know is what it says right here. And it says this, it says those who heard it being convicted by their conscience that when Jesus spoke that I believe that they begin to be reminded of by the Holy Spirit of the, some of the stuff that they have done wrong. They're reminded of their past mistakes. Maybe the stuff they did yesterday or last week or last month that they're guilty as well. And so what do they do beginning with the oldest because older people are wiser, right? Right, old people? They begin to drop the stones And they begin to walk away until there's only two people left, Jesus 
and the woman. And then we have this beautiful exchange between Jesus and this woman. And this is really where I want to camp out today. It says this, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And in these two verses here, we see the heart of God for the sinner and for sin. And there's two kind of big things that I saw in this story this week as I was studying it. The first thing is this. Jesus brings grace to the messed up. If you came to church today and you're feeling a little bit of conviction over some of the mistakes, listen, Jesus brings grace to the messed up. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the second thing I see is that Jesus brings conviction to the stuck up. And this is important. And so often today, I see this as being a problem, and it being a problem within church is we we're throwing stones. Jesus says, hey, you got a stone in your hand, put the stone down and go sit down because you have no right. You have no right. No one's perfect. We all, the Bible says we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. So in a story like this, here's what I'd encourage you to do. When you're reading the Bible, put yourself in the story. Like find where you are in the story. And so in this story, there's, there's three basic uh, characters we can kind of lump ourselves into. We're either a Pharisee, we're a woman caught in adultery, or we're Jesus. Now we're working on this Jesus thing, right? But let me just tell you in the story, you ain't Jesus, okay? You haven't arrived there yet. So that means you're either the Pharisee or you're the woman caught in adultery, and I think a lot of times we kind of dismiss ourselves from being the Pharisee because we think, well, you know, I would never do what they're doing. I mean, they're ready to throw rocks at this woman and kill her. Like that, that would never do that. No. But you got to realize the time in which this verse is written. Like that was the normal of the day. If someone was caught in adultery, like you stoned them. And if they would have stoned her, they wouldn't have gotten any trouble. They wouldn't have gone for, to prison. That wouldn't have been considered murder. It was the normal practice of the day. So my question to you is, what's the normal practice of today when it comes to stoning people who maybe we look down on? Maybe it's that look that you give them, that unapproving look. Maybe it's that conversation you have with that other person about them. Maybe it's that social media post that you you write that's kind of vague, but that you know what you're doing when you write it. Or that post that you share that you you don't even know what you're talking about, but you're throwing stones. Listen, Jesus brings conviction to the stuck up. He says, put the stone down. He says, be humble, sit down. Some of you guys got that. That's cool. But we really, we really do. Like, if you got a stone in your hand, recognize you ain't perfect. So put the stone down. God hasn't called you. Listen, I, I see this so often. There's, there's Christians that believe that their role is to destroy darkness. And, 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 and hear me, we are supposed to stand up for what's right. And we're supposed to vote what we believe in, what the word of God says. We're supposed to do all those things. But, but your job is not to fight darkness. Your job is to be light. And light just wins against darkness. If you'll be light, it automatically fights darkness and is victorious over darkness. darkness light doesn't have to fight darkness. Darkness just loses to light. You flip a light switch on, darkness goes. That's how it works. So you just be light. That's who you're called to be. Quit throwing stones. 
The second thing we see, though, is that Jesus brings grace to the messed up. Look back at what he says. John 8, verse 10. He says, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Jesus starts in this really beautiful place with this woman. He starts by addressing her shame. Because realize, like this woman, man, she, I mean, imagine that ugly, horrible thing that, that is a secret sin in your life just being brought out in the open for everyone. Jesus, as, after he runs the haters off, he lets her know, hey, they have no right to shame you. He silences the voice of the enemy and says, where are they now? And, and he makes her verbalize what she sees now. He wants her speaking from the perspective. He wants to help her deactivate all of her shame. Why? Because as long as she is bound up by shame, she's going to have a hard time connecting with him. And if she doesn't connect with him properly, she's never going to be able to move past what she's feeling and what she's dealing with. If you're, if you're here today and you're dealing with some shame and maybe you came to church and I'm talking about sin and you're thinking about what you've done and oh, I get it. Listen, I've been there before. But I want you to know Jesus says, hey, ain't nobody got the right to shame you, including the devil. Don't be shamed. Don't be ashamed of yourself. I love you and I'm for you and I'm going to die for you because I love you that much. Second thing that he does, look at this, verse 11, after he says, has no one condemned you? And she answers, he says this to her, he says, neither do I condemn you. Now something hit me this week as I was reading this. I've read this story, I don't know how many times in my life. I've heard this story over and over again. But it's just something that kind of hit me this week I'd never seen before. Okay, Jesus starts off this conversation with this woman by saying, or or with with the Pharisees, he says, Uh, whichever one of you is without sin, you go ahead, you throw the first stone. And they all leave, right? Why? Because obviously they all have sin in their life. And when it's all over, there's two people. One of them is the woman. The other one is Jesus. Why is Jesus still there? Because he is the one without sin. So understand, in that moment, he has the right to throw the stone at her. He has the right to call her to... The punishment that she deserves. But he doesn't throw stones at her. He throws grace at her. He throws acceptance at her. He throws forgiveness at her. He doesn't dismiss what she did as being okay. He doesn't do that. And he can't do that. See, a lot of times we we love this idea of Jesus being our Savior, but also understand because Jesus is God, he's also a just judge. And he's all about justice. And sin deserves punishment. The wages of sin have to be paid. And so Jesus doesn't just say, well, you know, just whatever. You don't have to worry about this. You just do whatever you want to. No, no. He, 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 he doesn't do that. And, and so how can you say, well, how can he do that and him still be a just judge? How can he just let her off the hook and he still be who he is supposed to be? Well, here's how. He lets her off the hook because he knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to go on the hook for her. He knows that he's going to die on the cross, and he's going to take the punishment she deserves, because sin always deserves punishment. He's going to take it for her so she can be forgiven. If you are here last week, I talked about the refrigerator and how my son, when he's about four years old, he spilled an entire uh, cup of grape juice in the refrigerator, and, and he, you know, he's four. He didn't really know how to deal with it, so his solution was to just shut the door and move on. And so it makes a huge mess. There's wages because of the, the juice being spilled. And it was death. It had to be cleaned up. It was awful. 
And so what happens is me and Sarah discovered this later. Well, our solution was not, well, we'll just pretend it didn't happen. We'll just leave it alone. Our solution was also not, hey, hey, little four-year-old, come in here and you clean this up. Why? Because he can't do it. He's four. He doesn't have the ability to take all the drawers and cabinets and deep clean our refrigerator. He can't do that. So, so what do me and Sarah do? We take his wages and we cleaned up his mess for him because he couldn't clean up his mess. Listen, this, this is the gospel. Jesus came. And he died on the cross. Listen, you could not clean up your mess. You cannot clean up the sin of your life. So Jesus came and he went on the hook for the punishment and the wages that you deserve. And now because of him, you can receive of the grace of God. You can receive forgiveness of sin. Sin has to be paid for. So you can either choose to put your sin upon the cross and allow Jesus receive of the work that he did to purchase your freedom and your forgiveness of sin. Or you can dismiss that. And continue to stay on the hook for your sin yourself. And try to work it all out in your own ability. But let me just tell you, you can't do it. You cannot pay for your own sin. Sin has to be dealt with. And so Jesus starts with this woman by saying, hey, the accusers, the voice of condemnation, no one has the right. No one has the right to condemn you. And I don't condemn you either. And I throw at you grace and love, and forgiveness. And I'll go on the hook for what you've done. And then he makes a final statement, and this is so important. John 8, verse 11. After he says, neither do I condemn you, he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. No one one can, can condemn you, shame you for this. I don't shame you. I forgive you. But he also says, hey, you gotta stop this. Some of you need to hear the voice of conviction of of Jesus today that's saying, hey, it's got to stop. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I forgive you. Move on. You can do whatever you want now. Just feel free to live however you want to. No, no, no. He says, go and sin no more. In other words, he says, stop sinning. Why? Because he knows the wages of sin is death. He knows if she doesn't stop this, that she's going to end up right back where she is. And it's going to cost her her life because sin is a killer. So he says, go and sin no more. You got to stop. You got to deal with this, this secret sin of your life. You got you, you to gotta stop it. Now, I, I'm going to be real with you this morning. There, there was a season in my life when I had some secret sin, some hidden sin. I had, I had a mess behind the door that I could not move past. And I, I, I knew I, I was a Christian. I knew what the Word of God said. I knew that, that it, was, it could do damage to God's calling on my life. I, I knew that it was hurting me. I knew it was hurting my relationships. I was married to Sarah at the time, but we, we didn't have any children yet. But I knew it, I knew it was going to hurt my marriage. I knew it could affect my children. But if I'm just being real with you this morning, that didn't help me stop. And I could stand up here today and tell you about all these things that you can do to try to position yourself to stop sinning. And, and it's good. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not, you know, those things aren't good. You, you need to get accountability and you need to talk to some people. You need to bring this darkness, this hidden stuff into the light and get some help from other people. You need to get into the word of God and study what the word has to say. Renew your mind. Speak the word of God. You need to probably put some stuff in place that's going to help you to defend yourself and keep yourself from continuing to fall back into that sin. But listen, if your heart and your motivation is not right when it comes to this sin, you can do all that stuff and I seriously doubt you're going to find freedom. If you want to overcome sin, 
and put to death the deeds of the fleshly body, then if you're going to do that, you have to be motivated by Jesus when it comes to sin. In other words, uh, you have to, your motivation needs to be, I don't want to hurt the heart of the one who died for me. The Bible talks about this idea in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. This is good news gospel for you today. If you're struggling with hidden sin, secret sin, listen, here's the key. Here's here's what's going to help you move past this. It says this, for godly sorrow produces repentance. That's what Jesus says to this woman. You got to stop this. In other words, he says, you got to repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn the other way. Like repentance is one of those words we hear sometimes at church. Repentance doesn't just mean you say, I'm sorry. Repentance means that you start going in the opposite direction, that you were maybe heading this way, down this path of sin. And repentance means I'm going to turn, I'm going to do 180, and I'm going to head in the opposite direction. That's repentance. And this verse says that godly sorrow produces turning away from sin. In other words, godly sorrow, the byproduct of godly sorrow is the ability to turn away from sin. So, what's godly sorrow? Well, here's what godly sorrow is. Godly sorrow is the awareness that all sin breaks God's heart. Godly sorrow takes the focus off of you and it puts it on Jesus. A couple of quotes I read this week that I thought were really good. Godly sorrow is a gift of the Spirit. It is a deep realization that our actions have offended our Father and our God. Is it a sharp, keen awareness that our behavior caused the Savior who knew no sin, even the greatest of all, to endure agony and suffering? Jerry Bridges says, Godly sorrow is developed when we focus on the true nature of sin as offense against God rather rather than something that makes us feel guilty. With godly sorrow, the focus is on God. Worldly sorrow says, I'm concerned with how this is going to affect me. How this is going to affect my calling, my plans, my what, what's the consequences? What could this cost me? It's me, 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 me. Godly sorrow says, I've hurt the heart of the one who died for me. And we see this played out in the life of two kings, King Saul and King David, who were really representations of who me and you were called to be as Christians. We're called to be kings and priests in the family of God. And that's what kind of the role that... King Solomon and or King Saul and King David had. They were in these positions where they were ruling in the family of God. But they both make mistakes. They both sin. And when Saul's sin is brought before him, he responds with worldly sorrow. Look at this with me. This is 1 Samuel 15, verse 30. After Samuel comes to him and talks to him about his sin, he says, I have sinned, but oh, at least, check this out, honor me. Honor me. Before the leaders and before my people, my people, by going to me, by going with me to worship the Lord your God. In other words, here's what he's saying. Hey, I know I messed up, but, you know, let's just keep this on the down low. This is just between, we'll, we'll deal with it, but, but don't shame me in front of my kingdom. Don't shame me in front of my people. All Saul cares about is me, me, me. How's this going to affect me? What are the consequences against me? It, it's worldly sorrow is what we see. David shows us something else. After he sins with Bathsheba, commits adultery, has her husband murdered when Nathan the prophet comes to him and deals with him about his sin, 2 Samuel 12, 13, look at the words of David. He says, I have sinned, he owns it, against the Lord. 
He recognizes who his sin is against. It's against the Lord. And listen, David doesn't get a rip what anybody thinks after this. We see it right after this. He, it, the Bible says that he puts on sackcloth and gets in ashes and weeps openly. In other words, he puts on ratty clothes, torn up, ugly clothes. He sits, literally sits in a pile of ashes and weeps openly. Everyone sees it. They know what's going on and he doesn't care. In fact, during this time, he writes this in Psalm 51 verse 4. He wrote this psalm while dealing with this sin. He says, against you, he's talking to God, against you, God, and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. That, my friends, is godly sorrow. He recognizes that he hurt the heart of the one who's been so good to him. And it broke his heart to think that he was breaking the heart of his God. Saul just cared about me, me, me. David cared about you, 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 God. Because of that, we see in their life, David is able to move on. Now, he has to deal with the repercussions of his sin, especially under the old covenant that he lived under at that time. But he's able to kind of move on and do more in his life. Saul, on the other hand, if you look at his life, it gets worse and worse and worse. And his life ends in absolute shame and dishonor. Why? Because he had worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. here's, Here's my point in all this. If you want to move beyond the mess behind the door, the sin, the hidden sin of your life, your motivation has to be for the heart of God. I want you to know today, if you're here today, you came to New Song Church and you've made some mistakes, Jesus says, hey, we all make mistakes. We all fall short of the glory of God. And I don't care what anybody said about you. I don't condemn you. And no one else has the right to. In fact, I love you enough that I was willing to go to the cross and go on the hook for your sin to pay for it for you. But Jesus also says to you, go and sin no more. It's got to stop got to repent and if you're going to repent you need what you need is godly sorrow you need a revelation of what your sin costs and what it did like I said earlier I struggled with sin for years and I did all the things in the natural to stop it but when I found real true freedom was when I was praying one day and God gave me a revelation of where I stood at the cross. See, I said earlier, you need to put yourself in the story. And the revelation I got is when I continue to sin, knowing that Jesus purchased my freedom for me, I become a Roman soldier. I become one that looks at the cross of Jesus Christ and spits on Jesus and rips hair out of his beard and drives nails into his hands and feet. I don't care about that, Lord. I care about me, me, me. I pray today that you get a revelation of godly sorrow because it will produce the repentance you need to move on and find the freedom God has for you. The good news is the gospel made a way. Jesus made a way. The bad news is bad, but the good news is so good. But in order for you to experience the good news, you've got to recognize 
how ugly sin was and what Jesus was willing to do for you in order to free you from it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? I want to pray for you today. I recognize that there's people here today as I was preparing for this message, I know there's people, God's speaking to you right now. The Holy Spirit's talking to you. Maybe you've got some areas of your life, some hidden stuff. You know you want, you want to move past it, but you haven't been able to. I want to pray for you today that you would receive a revelation of the love of Jesus for you and of the work of the cross towards you and that you would be able to experience godly sorrow so that you can move forward. So Lord, I, I just thank you for these people that are here today, Lord. I know that you're speaking to hearts right now and ministering to hearts. And like you said to the woman caught in adultery, you you took the shame, the excuse for shame. You, You took away every excuse that kept her from being able to be close to you. And then you let her know that you didn't condemn her, but you wanted her to move forward in freedom. But we, we say today, God, we recognize that we make mistakes, we sin, and we, we want freedom today, Lord. So God, I, I pray right now that you, would, that you would download into us godly sorrow. That as we move forward with our life with you, Lord, you give us a revelation of your love for us at the cross, the work you did on the cross, so that we can truly, truly see that our sin hurts you the most. Thank you, Jesus, for this freedom. Praise you, Lord, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name. Was your head still bowed? Thanks for listening to this week's message from New Song Church. If you have a prayer need or would like more information about New Song, you can email info at newsongpeople.com. If you would like to partner with New Song through giving, go to www.newsongpeople.com forward slash give. And if you want to stay connected to New Song, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for New Song People.